Today is June 30th, 2020, and this is episode number 14 of Blurred Laws and Life with me, your host, Richard Bush. Over the last few weeks, we have focused on the life component of Blurred Laws and Life, and I felt as if that was obviously a necessary thing to do with all that is going on in this country and in this world, beginning with the murder of George Floyd and all the events that have happened subsequently. Episode number 10 dealt with George Floyd's murder, and of course we had on um, the legendary Donna DeVarona um, to discuss her fight for equal rights, both racially as well as based on gender. And then in episode 11, I had a lot of fun with uh, the butterfly effect, which, as you will know, having listened to episode number 11, in chaos theory, theorizes that a very small change in initial facts can have a significant outcome or make a significant difference, I should say, on an outcome. Episode 12 had the great Polo de Don, and we had what I think was a fascinating discussion on race relations and then a very fun and I hope humorous discussion about basketball and his view that lizards, alien lizards, are controlling us and controlling our minds and perhaps that Polo himself is an alien lizard who's controlling me, which I believe is actually true. And of course, in episode number 13, um, I had my good friend, one of my oldest friends, Sherwin Celion, to have a little bit of fun with what Polo said. And then, of course, we discussed our um, case together where I helped him avoid deportation by getting a pardon from then-Governor Jeb Bush for a crime that he had committed early on in his life. So it's been a, a fun three or four weeks as far as the show is concerned. I think the subject matter has been interesting and has been necessary. And I could continue um, with that same theme this week because every day something new happens. The changes that are going on in society, the movement, people finding their voices, using their influence for social change, is continuing. Just yesterday I saw that the Mississippi State Legislature removed the Confederate symbol from the state flag, which was um, the last state in the United States to do so, and it was in no small measure due to the efforts of uh, Mississippi college football players who essentially said they could not represent the state of Mississippi with the Confederate symbol being part of the state flag. And there have been similar uses by um, people finding their power and their voice to um, help with necessary social change. But after four weeks of this type of discussion, I felt as if this week with episode number 14, it was um, time to get back to the law part of blurred laws and life. So I decided that today I would discuss digital media and the rules 
concerning the use of intellectual property on various internet websites and by internet service providers and further discuss the what is called the Music Modernization Act of 2018, which in a case I am currently litigating, we are challenging the constitutionality of a specific provision in that very controversial statute that came into law at the end of 2018. I think we take for granted sometimes that, or at least people not in the law take for granted sometimes that music and intellectual property is available on demand through many sources, but there is licenses and requirements in order to post um, music and other intellectual property on the internet and use of intellectual property and specifically music by digital music providers. There is specific requirements governing that use. There has been litigation over the past decade concerning the allegedly unauthorized use of music and that culminated in this Music Modernization Act that was enacted in late 2018. So I think this is a very interesting discussion specifically or particularly for people who are not educated in the law and who probably are curious about how music gets to end users these days and what is required to do so and the laws that uh, govern that use. In the old days, so to speak, the distribution of music was relatively uncomplicated. Music was, generally speaking, distributed in physical format. First in vinyls and then perhaps eight-track cassettes and then in CDs. And the way it worked was that the record labels had a relatively complicated distribution network and manufacturing plants, and they would, or their distributors would, sell the records to record stores, who would then resell those records to the general public, and the artists were paid for those record sales a relatively small percentage of a constructed retail price of an album. In addition to that, record labels would license their records to third parties, such as compilation distributors, those who would create compilation albums and license for TV and for movies. And for those licenses, artists would get paid 50% of what the record label received from those third parties because there was no incremental cost to the record label for those licenses. The third parties did the manufacturing and distribution and the record label simply got a royalty that they split, generally speaking, 50-50 with the artist. And that's on the sound recording side of the equation. And in order to distribute a record, in order to reproduce a record, the record label would have to also get what's called a mechanical license from the music publisher, the one who owns the underlying 
musical composition and there was a statutory rate that was applied to that and the owner, the songwriters and the publishers got a penny rate, six, seven, eight cents per record sold based upon this mechanical license that was entered into with the party distributing the record, whether it be the record label or a third party, such as a compilation record owner or record distributor, I should say. As we discussed in a prior podcast, I believe it was episode number two, that began to change with the advent of permanent downloads. And the first issue that arose with permanent downloads was what royalty the artist should receive from the record label for the download. Record labels took the position that they were selling to iTunes and therefore the record sold royalty, a small percentage of the constructed retail price applied, while others argued that it was a license and the artist should get 50% of the record label's net receipts. And as I mentioned, I litigated that issue on behalf of Eminem's production company and we won and we received a ruling that um, the agreement between the record label and iTunes was a license and uh, Eminem and the production company were entitled to 50% of the label's net receipts and that litigation spawned class actions by other artists who wanted the same thing and individual lawsuits. The other issue that arose early in the 2000s was whether internet service providers would be liable for the posting of music on their sites. And in response to that, the Congress enacted the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, which provided a safe harbor to internet service providers in the event that infringing material was posted by third parties on their site. It granted an immunity from liability if they acted once they received a takedown notice from the party that owned the intellectual property. As you may have heard, uh, President Trump who is upset with social media sites currently because he believes that they are not supporting him and are voices for uh, Democrats, has threatened to revoke this immunity that internet service providers enjoy through the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, um, but I don't think that's going to go anywhere. But it is controversial because it does impose an unrealistic burden sometimes on intellectual property holders because it's not just that they say, oh, my song is being infringed, please take down the link. They are required, the owner of the intellectual property, to specify the link where the intellectual property such as the song is being displayed. And if 
there is another link or if that same person who posted the first link simply posts another link, then the internet service provider has immunity under the safe harbor with respect to that second link of the same exact thing. So in order to truly police this, the owner of the intellectual property has to basically continually review and scour the internet for every potential link that is infringing on their property. And the internet service provider gets a free pass with respect to other links that may have the same exact posting on it until they are given notice of it. So that is actually quite controversial and most owners of intellectual property are not happy with that safe harbor that is provided. Now, the time iTunes launched um, in around 2004, there were, in fact, other streaming services that were in their infancy, although streaming was not uh, what it is today. It's generally not interactive streaming. And the primary method of distribution, once iTunes launched, were permanent downloads, but there were streaming services. And... With respect to the publishers, the record labels with respect to permanent downloads were required to get the, what are called the mechanical licenses, as I mentioned earlier, from the publishers to allow the compositions to be distributed within the recordings on iTunes, whereas in the streaming agreements, it was the streaming companies who were required to get the mechanical licenses. So one important thing to note with respect to the streaming of songs is that there are three distinct licenses that are required in order to stream a song on a streaming service. The first is a license from the owner of the sound recording. And the sound recording is basically the performance of the underlying musical composition. So you have a song, it can be performed by different artists, and you would need a license from the owner of the particular performance of that song to be able to stream that on a streaming service. In addition, a streaming service uh, provider, we'll call them a digital music provider, must obtain a performance license from a public performance organization such as BMI or ASCAP. And BMI and ASCAP essentially license every song in their catalog under what is called a blanket license. So for those of you who don't know this, every songwriter who writes a song, every publisher who publishes a song is registered with essentially one of two public performance organizations, BMI or ASCAP. And they control millions of songs. And then BMI or ASCAP issues what are called blanket licenses to broadcast networks, venues such as football stadiums, bars, restaurants, clubs, 
and streaming services so that they have the right to perform any of the songs that BMI or ASCAP control through their agreements with songwriters and publishers. The third license that is required, and this is required of interactive streaming companies such as Spotify, is what is called, as I mentioned before, a mechanical license, which gives the streaming company the right to reproduce and distribute musical compositions. And they are required to get that mechanical license directly from the publisher who owns the musical composition. Without that license, they are committing copyright infringement. The first major player in the interactive streaming field was Spotify. Now we have Apple Music and many others, but Spotify was first to market essentially and dominated the field when it began streaming in June or July of 2011 in the United States. After Spotify launched, a few years after Spotify launched, there were several very public complaints filed against Spotify alleging that Spotify had not obtained the necessary mechanical licenses to be able to stream the musical compositions on their service. There was a public dispute with the National Music Publishers Association, which is the trade organization that represents the major music publishers. And there was a resolution of that issue in 2016. Also in the 2015-16 time period, there were two class actions filed by music publishers and songwriters against Spotify, alleging that Spotify had not obtained the necessary licenses to be able to stream those musical compositions on the Spotify platform. And there were several individual lawsuits filed alleging the same thing. And full disclosure, I represented the plaintiffs in those cases that involved thousands of musical compositions. The important thing to understand with respect to all this is that under the law, the damages for copyright infringement are significant. A copyright infringement plaintiff is entitled to receive the actual damages that it suffered, which might be the amount that it would have licensed the composition for to be used had the parties entered into a license, plus the profits of the defendant attributable to the infringement. And there would be expert reports that would be submitted that would argue what the profits would be, whether that would include perhaps equity value, um, could include advertising revenue, could include all types of profits that were attributable to the alleged infringement. In the alternative, the plaintiff can elect rather than actual damages and profits, what are called statutory damages. And statutory damages 
are meant to, in many ways, punish the infringer in the event they claim that the damages or profits attributable to the infringement were not significant. A defendant faces statutory damages up to $150,000 per work infringed for willful copyright infringement. So if you're talking about thousands of musical compositions at $150,000 for willful infringement per work, the damages can be in literally in the hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, Spotify is on record in public testimony discussing the quote-unquote crushing statutory damages it can face if found liable for copyright infringement. Now, as I mentioned, um, in 2016, the NMPA resolved its issues with Spotify and in a public resolution, essentially waived its right to go after statutory damages thereafter against Spotify. And interestingly, it should be noted that the NMPA, as I said, was a trade organization for the major music publishers. And the major music publishers are, of course, owned or are affiliates of major record labels. And each of the major record labels actually hold an equity interest in Spotify. So after the resolution with the NMPA and Again, as I mentioned, there were class actions filed, Lowry and the Ferret class action, and the individual lawsuits that we filed on behalf of uh, music publishers in 2017. In late 2017, just before December, word leaked of a bill that was floating around Congress that would eventually become the Music Modernization Act of 2018. And when word leaked of this bill and the understanding was that it was crafted jointly by the NMPA and others, potentially Spotify and maybe other digital music providers, word got out that there was a provision in it that stated that for any lawsuit alleging copyright infringement against a digital music provider, statutory damages and other damages other than undefined royalties would not be available for any lawsuit not filed as of January 1, 2018. And as I mentioned, this bill, which had not become law yet, first became sort of leaked right before January 1 of 2018, giving very little, if any, time to for anyone who might be considering filing a lawsuit to do so before January 1 of 2018. The Music Modernization Act became law then towards the end of 2018, and it provided retroactively that if a lawsuit had not been filed by January 1, 2018, which was nine months earlier, that a copyright infringement plaintiff 
lost the right, as I said, to various remedies, almost just about all the remedies under the Copyright Act, including profits, including statutory damages, and including the right to recover attorney's fees, which is available for a successful plaintiff in a copyright infringement action, among other things. I actually wrote an op-ed opinion in the Tennessean just prior to the enactment of the Music Modernization Act, setting forth what I viewed as the problem areas with it. And it's quite complicated, too complicated right now to go into detail with respect to all of the issues that I discussed. But the one that is particularly relevant to this discussion is this retroactive and provisional immunity from liability that the MMA provides. So under the Music Modernization Act, this limitation of liability that I discussed is provisional. The digital music provider has to comply with certain terms of the MMA in order to qualify for it. But if it does, then it has the right to be immune from liability for copyright infringement damages, as I mentioned, um, if a lawsuit had not been filed as of January 1, 2018. And as I explained in my op-ed and am reiterating now, that to me sounds unconstitutional. A copyright infringement claim is a property right under established law that vests at the moment the infringement takes place. That was established clearly in a Second Circuit court case, and Second Circuit is a Second Circuit Court of Appeals, essentially out of New York, which held that you cannot be deprived of your copyright infringement claim retroactively. The name of the case is Davis versus Blige. And it is my view that to deprive a copyright infringement plaintiff of the rights under the Copyright Act retroactively, as the Music Modernization Act does, is an unconstitutional taking of a vested property right and violates both substantive and procedural due process under the United States Constitution. In 2019, I believe June or July, we filed a copyright infringement action against Spotify on behalf of 8 Mile Style, who co-owns and controls many of the Eminem songs. And in that case, uh, we are alleging a lot of things, but um, one is that Spotify did not comply with the Music Modernization Act in order to enjoy immunity from liability, and that in the alternative, as I mentioned, that the Music Modernization Act is unconstitutional. The case is really just getting started now, but certainly will be in the news as it has been and as developments occur. That is a very interesting issue, obviously, and we will see how it develops and how this litigation unfolds. I will point out that after we filed uh, this lawsuit on behalf of 8 Mile Style against Spotify and raised this constitutional issue, there were many 
reports and articles covering the filing. And in one such article, Lawrence Tribe, the constitutional scholar from Harvard University, was quoted. Uh, Professor Tribe has written textbooks on constitutional law and is often quoted on constitutional issues. And he described our constitutional challenge to the provisional immunity from liability under the Music Modernization Act as, quote, very substantial, end quote. In addition to this issue, there continues to be developing issues in this area. A couple of years ago, um, the National Music Publishers Association um, sued Peloton for not getting the appropriate licenses for the music that appears on the Peloton bike streaming service. And more recently, there has been news about TikTok being pursued for the music that appears on the TikTok service. Now, as I understand it, certain of that music is uploaded by customers while other of the music is provided by TikTok itself. And so there is perhaps a distinction when one considers the safe harbor provision um, with respect to music that is uploaded by a consumer, a third party, not available by, made available by TikTok, and the music that is made available by TikTok for which they would not enjoy any safe harbor. These are very interesting issues. This law is constantly developing and evolving, and it will be very interesting to stay tuned to see how this all plays out over time. In fact, this discussion today just scratches the surface on the developing issues in this field. Every day, there seems to be a new method of distributing music that evolves, new services that emerge, and new issues that arise as a result of the constant changing of technology and the use of music on the technology that is in the forefront of today's news cycle. The next issue, and this is an issue that is also developing and I will discuss in a later podcast, is artificial intelligence and whether a robot or perhaps a reptilian alien can be held liable for copyright infringement. But that issue will have to await a future episode of Blurred Laws and Life. Hope you've enjoyed episode number 14 of Blurred Laws and Life. We've gotten back to the law component. And while this was a general discussion, basically summarizing the last 20 years of the development of the exploitation and distribution of music in a 30-minute podcast. I hope this gave you some taste for the issues that are involved 
and helped educate you on the issues that various businesses and companies face when exploiting intellectual property. See you again next week on Blurred Laws and Life.